0: Book One, Chapter Two of *The Cinema Murder*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Cinema Murder* by E. Phillips Oppenheim. Book One, Chapter Two. The railway station at Detton Magna presented, if possible, an even more dreary appearance than earlier in the day, as the time drew near that night for the departure of the last train northwards its long strip of flinty platform was utterly deserted around the three flickering gas-lamps the drizzling rain fell continuously the weary porter came yawning out of his lamp-room into the booking-office where the station-master sat alone his chair turned away from the open wicket-window to the smouldering embers of the smoky fire no passengers to-night seemingly the latter remarked to his subordinate not a sign of one was the reply "'That young chap who came down from London on a one-day return excursion "'hasn't gone back, either. That'll do his ticket in.' The outside door was suddenly opened and closed. The sound of footsteps approaching the ticket window was heard. A long, white hand was thrust through the aperture, a voice was heard from the invisible outside. Third to Denton Junction, please.' The station-master took the ticket from a little rack, received the exact sum he demanded, swept it into the till, and resumed his place before the fire." The porter, with a lamp in his hand, lounged out into the booking hall. The prospective passenger, however, was nowhere in sight. He looked back into the office. "'Was that Jim Spender going up to see his barmaid again?' he asked his superior. The stationmaster yawned drowsily. "'Didn't notice,' he answered. "'What an old woman you're getting, George. Want to know everybody's business, don't you?' The porter withdrew, a little huffed. When, a few minutes later, the train drew in, he avoided ostentatiously a journey to the far end of the platform to open the door for the solitary passenger who was standing there. He passed up the train and slammed the door without even glancing in at the window. Then he stood and watched the red lights disappear. "'Was it Jim?' the station-master asked him, on their way out. "'Didn't notice,' his subordinate replied, a little curtly. "'Maybe it was, and maybe it wasn't. Good-night.' Philip Romilly sat back in the corner of his empty third-class carriage, peering out of the window, in which he could see only the reflection of the feeble gas-lamp. There was no doubt about it, however, they were moving. The first stage of his journey had commenced. The blessed sense of motion, after so long waiting, at first soothed and then exhilarated him. In a few moments he became restless. He let down the rain-blurred window and leaned out. The cool dampness of the night was immensely refreshing. The rain softened his hot cheeks. He sat there, peering away into the shadows, struggling for the sight of definite objects. A tree, a house, the outline of a field, anything to keep the other thoughts away, the thoughts that came sometimes like the aftermath of a grisly, unrealizable nightmare. Then he felt chilly, drew up the window, thrust his hands into his pockets, from which he drew out a handsome cigarette-case, struck a match, and smoked, with vivid appreciation of the quality of the tobacco, examined the crest on the case as he put it away, and finally patted with surreptitious eagerness the flat Morocco letter-case in his inside pocket. At the junction he made his way into the refreshment-room and ordered a long whiskey and soda, which he drank in a couple of gulps. Then he hastened to the booking-office and took a first-class ticket to Liverpool. A few minutes later secured a seat in the long north-bound express which came gliding to the side of the platform. He spent some time in the lavatory, washing, arranging his hair, straightening his tie, after which he made his way into the elaborate dining-car and found a comfortable corner-seat. The luxury of his surroundings soothed his jagged nerves. The car was comfortably warmed, the electric light upon his table was softly shaded, The steward, who waited upon him, was swift foot and obsequious, and seemed entirely oblivious of Philip's shabby, half-soaked clothes. He ordered champagne a little vaguely, and the wine ran through his veins with a curious potency. He ate and drank now and then mechanically, now and then with the keenest appetite. Afterwards he smoked a cigar, drank coffee, and sipped a liqueur with the appreciation of a connoisseur. A fellow-passenger passed him an evening paper, which he glanced through with apparent interest. Before he reached his journey's end, he had ordered and drunk another liqueur. He tipped the steward handsomely. It was the first well-cooked meal which he had eaten for many months. Arrived at Liverpool, he entered a cab and drove to the Adelphi Hotel. He made his way at once to the office. His clothes were dry now, and the rest and warmth had given him more confidence." "'You have a room engaged for me, I think,' he said. "'Mr. Douglas Romilly. I sent some luggage on.' The man merely glanced at him and handed him a ticket. "'Number 67, sir, on the second floor,' he announced. A porter conducted him upstairs into a large, well-furnished bedroom. A fire was blazing in the grate, a dressing-case, a steamer-trunk, and a hat-box were sat out on the foot of the bedstead. The heavier luggage labelled for the hold, sir, the man told him, is downstairs and will go direct to the steamer tomorrow morning. That was according to your instructions, I believe. Quite right, Philip assented. What time does the boat sail? Three o'clock, sir. Philip frowned. This was his first disappointment. He had fancied himself on board early in the day. The prospect of a long morning's inaction seemed already to terrify him. "'Not till the afternoon,' he muttered. "'Matter of tide, sir,' the man explained. "'You can go on board any time after eleven o'clock in the morning, though. "'Very much obliged to you, sir.' The porter withdrew, entirely satisfied with his tip. Philip Romilly locked the door after him carefully. Then he drew a bunch of keys from his pocket, and after several attempts opened both the steamer-trunk and the dressing-case. He surveyed their carefully packed contents with a certain grim and fantastic amusement— handled the silver brushes, shook out a purple brocaded dressing-gown, laid out a suit of clothes for the morrow, even selected a shirt and put the links in it. Finally he wandered into the adjoining bathroom, took a hot bath, packed away at the bottom of the steamer-trunk the clothes which he had been wearing, went to bed, and slept. End of Book One Chapter Two